Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. Beyond the Mask is also sponsored by crnaeducation.com. CRNAs, you can get the CE credits you need by just going to crnaeducation.com. They have over 100 AANA prior approved credits, all four core CPC modules, and even over 40 pharmacology credits. No subscriptions. It's all online and mobile friendly. Just go to crnaeducation.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out our CE credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to the Beyond the Mask podcast. This is the Anesthesia Alchemy edition, Terry and Gary Unplugged. Join hosts Gary Bridges and Terry Wicks as they deep dive into today's most important clinical conversations in a unique but educational way, in a humorous balance that only they can achieve. Let today's journey begin. Here are Terry and Gary with your next installment of Anesthesia Alchemy. Three, two, one. Well, hello, everyone. Listeners far and wide, welcome to another exciting, thrilling episode of Anesthesia Alchemy, Terry and Gary Unplugged. I'm Terry, your co-host, and as always, I'm joined by my ever-knowledgeable and effervescent friend, Gary Bridges. How are you doing today, Gary? (laughs) Hey, Terry, I'm doing great. Thanks. Always thrilled to dive into the fascinating world of anesthesia with you. Well, thank you so much. And today's episode is going to be a great gem for our listeners you know, we're digging into a topic that's both confusing and in a little bit of a strange way, kind of endearing, the clouding <laughs> cascade. One of my all-time favorites. My students look forward to this every single year. And not just that, we're zooming in on patients, on anticoagulants, undergoing non-cardiac surgeries. Pretty common stuff. Yeah, indeed, Terry. I'm sure your students wait for those lectures with bated breath. I mean, this yes. is so... that. <laughs> <laughs> the clotting cascade can be a bit of a puzzle for many, but it is crucial in the understanding of the dynamics of blood coagulation. And when you throw anticoagulants into the mix, especially for non-cardiac surgeries, things get a little bit more intriguing, which we'll sort of go over and review um, over the course of this episode. you darn right, Gary. And we'll be deciphering the coagulation cascade complexities, discussing the challenges anesthesia providers face, and perhaps even unraveling some of the mysteries around managing patients on anticoagulants in a variety of these scenarios. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Terry. And it's you know really a topic that's both clinically relevant for all of our listeners out there, as well as even our patients, if some of you are listening. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, Terry, it's a bit of a love story, no doubt. Um, you know, obviously we say this with tongue in cheek, because every time someone listens or hears about clotting cascade, um, we don't want to undermine the complexity of this type of uh, discussion. And it does get quite complex, which we're going to try to do a high level and not get into too much nitty gritty uh, details. But navigating the clotting cascade and managing anticoagulants and non-cardiac surgery does require a delicate touch, much like handling the matters of the heart, if you will. 
Oh, Gary, don't make me blush. Gosh. <laughs> so let's buckle up, dear listeners, as we embark on another adventure into the world of anesthesia. All right, let's roll up our sleeves. We're dissecting the clouding cascade piece by piece. It's like unwrapping a mystery, isn't it, Gary? Absolutely, Terry. Let's start with the three main pathways that we know every anesthesia provider loves to talk about and certainly has committed to memory, with a little tongue-in-cheek there. What we're going to look at and review in brief is the intrinsic, extrinsic, and common pathways of the clotting cascade. Now think of them as different rows that eventually converge to the, the same destination uh, in order to formulate a stable blood clot. You know, and this kind of reminds me of that old poem that Robert Frost wrote, the road not taken, two roads diverge in a yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both. Right, Terry? It's, it's the coagulation cascade not taken. Absolutely. Hey, but first of all, let's talk about the intrinsic pathway. The intrinsic pathway is like the body's internal alert system. It's activated by trauma inside the vascular system, say damage to a blood vessel. And then you've got factors 8, 9, 11, and 12 that can come into play, orchestrating a cascade of events that eventually leads to the activation of our favorite buddy at the crossroads of coagulation, factor 10. Factor 10, not to be confused with cranial nerve 10. All right, well, moving on to the extrinsic pathway, it's more of an external trigger. This pathway is activated by external trauma that causes blood to escape from the vascular system. And so tissue factor comes into play here, combining with factor seven to kickstart that clotting cascade and eventually merging into the common pathway, as you say, Terry. That's where the magic happens. The common pathway is where both uh, the in intrinsic and extrinsic pathways come together. Factors 10, five, two, that's our old buddy prothrombin, the master coagulant and Factor one, fibrinogen, they work together to form a stable blood clot. It's the grand finale of the clotting cascade. You can hear the buzzers and whistles already, where a temporary platelet plug becomes a robust fibrin-strengthened clot. And we want that during surgery especially. <laughs> now let's sure. talk about the unsung hero, vitamin K. Vitamin K is like the director behind all the scenes, ensuring the production of key clotting factors. So those factors again, factors 2, 7, 9, and 10, they all rely on vitamin K for their synthesis. Without it, the cascade would stumble, clotting factors wouldn't be produced in sufficient quantities in order to abate or stop or slow bleeding. And Gary, if you want to see the color drain out of a graduate student's <laughs> face, just say carboxylation to them. <laughs> vitamin K is essential. As you said, for the gamma carboxylation of these factors, transforming them into activatable forms. So when we're considering patients on anticoagulants, especially those taking vitamin K, we're especially playing with conductors, the conductor's baton, affecting the entire orchestration of the clotting cascade. I couldn't have put it better, Terry. It's like having a backstage pass of the most intricate show in the human body. Understanding these pathways and the role of vitamin K helps us navigate, obviously, the complexities of, of clotting, but especially dealing with patients who are undergoing non-cardiac surgeries and the management of the anticoagulation therapies that they may be on when they present to you for surgery. 
Darn right, Gary. So listeners, we hope this breakdown sheds light on the fascinating world of the clouding cascade for you. Stick with us as we explore more of the world of anticoagulation and reversal of agents and what anesthesia providers confront in their practice every single day. Now, in our quest to unravel the mysteries of anesthesia, we often stumble upon resources that guide us through the complexities of patient care. So next, we're diving into a significant article that sheds light on managing bleeding in patients on oral anticoagulants. That's right, Terry. In 2017, the American College of Cardiology issued an expert consensus decision pathway dedicated specifically to the management of bleeding in patients that are on anticoagulants. Now, why is this so crucial, you might wonder? Well, Gary, here's the inside scoop. We're not alone. With an estimated 6 million people on anticoagulants, managing these patients during the surgical period is a daily challenge for perioperative physicians and anesthesia providers. We're all working together to get this job done. The landscape of anticoagulation has evolved rapidly with novel anticoagulants gaining popularity and this consensus document becomes a guiding light in this ever-changing terrain. Absolutely, Terry. The document's incredibly important for all of us anesthesia providers as an indicator uh, or giving us indications for newer anticoagulants that expand rapidly. And certainly nurse anesthetists, as well as any physicians throughout the perioperative continuum, find themselves at the forefront of decision-making. The article does delve into recommendations for the interruption of anticoagulation therapy, management, and reinitiation of anticoagulants in scenarios where patients either have bleeding complications or undergoing various surgical procedures. Yeah, and here's the kicker, folks. The guidelines and the meta-analysis data are leaning towards direct anti-oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, sometimes we call them, much more over warfarin in many patient groups. With the market flooded with various DOCs, point-of-care coagulation testing devices, which are available, factor concentrates, which are out there, and new reversal agents, the management of these patients is becoming increasingly complex and challenging. Oh, isn't it so, Terry? We're not just dealing now with one anticoagulant and one pathway anymore. It's a multitude of options, which make it really confusing, I think, for some of us out there. And the stakes are really high due to the complexity. So the article that we're talking about does discuss and address some of those challenges today head-on, offering insights that are crucial for any perioperative provider, uh, namely nurse anesthetists, that try to navigate the landscape that's very intricate of anticoagulation management. All right, listeners, hang on to your hats as we journey through the details of the 2017 ACC Expert Consensus Decision Pathway. It's a roadmap. It's a roadmap that can illuminate the way for nurse anesthetists and other perioperative colleagues dealing with uh, bleeding complications or surgeries in patients on anticoagulants. Before we dive into the nitty-gritty details of the 2017 ACC Expert Consensus Decision Pathway, Boy, that's a mouthful. <laughs> Let's get a bird's eye view of what to expect. This pathway is a treasure trove of recommendations focusing on a multitude of anticoagulant agents and how to navigate them in the context of bleeding. That's right, Terry. And, and for the listeners out there, you know, we strongly encourage you to pull that document and, and review it. And it's one of those documents you want in your back pocket because Obviously, we're going to pay some lip service to it, but we're not going to go into the to the detail that that document. I mean, it's just it's 
it's not realistic. We'd be sitting here for an entire day, so you'd almost get a three credit hour course out of it. So <laughs> <laughs> and get and get put to sleep by us. <laughs> and get, that's right. But it is a comprehensive document that does take us through the intricacies of laboratory assessment, reversal strategies, as well as the pharmacokinetics of each of those drugs. Fantastic doc. But it does not stop there. It extracts a lot of the uh, perioperative interruption times that we need to place patients on hold uh, with some of their medications. Uh, and, you know, it's an extension from previous guidelines that have been out there in the literature, giving us a little bit more clear roadmap for managing these patients. Because it does, again, you know, one or two anticoagulants may be fine to be able to try to manage. But these newer agents that are coming out, um, sometimes you'll find patients on, on a range of them. Um, because they do function at different areas of the clotting cascade. Yeah, you know, an interruption and reinitiation of therapy is not left in the shadows. And this underscores the importance for all of us to stay current and review the literature. And this particular document takes a deep dive into that as well, providing us a thorough review. Now, what's impressive is that every recommendation comes with its supporting literature, making it a robust guide for CRNAs and perioperative positions. Now, it's worth noting that the management of bleeding on warfarin, a familiar player in the anticoagulation game, has been extensively detailed and won't be the focus of our review today. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to look at new stuff. Our aim here is to shine a spotlight on the newer agents, the ones reshaping the landscape of anticoagulation. That's right. So buckle up, listeners. We're going to embark on that journey through the labyrinth of anticoagulation management armed with the insights of the 2017 ACC Expert Consensus Decision Pathway. So, we will systematically try to break some of these, some of these recommendations, not all, uh, that can be game changers in nurse anesthetists practice. So, within the 2017 uh, ACC Expert Consensus Document uh, Decision Pathway, let's kind of take a break and look at uh, the intricate world of maybe bleeding management first. And, you know, the document provides us with an easy-to-follow algorithm breaking down bleeding into two major categories, minor and major. And, and this is one of your decision points uh, when we sit there and try to figure out, you know, uh, do we cancel a case? Do we continue with the case? Uh, is there going to be a lot of bleeding? Is there going to be potentially unexpected bleeding? And so this, this pathway does kind of go through some of those. And I'll just kind of, before we jump into it, you know, so one of the recommendations out of the table, it says, does greater than or equal to uh, one of the following factors apply when you're trying to make that decision of major versus minor surgery? So bleeding at a critical site. And certainly the I'm not going to go and list all these things out, but you got to consider the surgical site that you're that you're talking about. The next decision point is hemodynamic instability. So how does the are they optimized comorbidities preoperatively and and obviously the ones that we think of even though it's non-cardiac surgery is that cardiac patient. Are they stable? And then clinically overt bleeding with hemoglobin decreases equal to or more than two grams per deciliter or the administration of two or more units of packed red blood cells. I'll turn it over to you, Terry. Wow, that's a, that's a lot to stick in your thinking cap. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, Gary, there's more. 
This document guides us through the steps for each category. For minor bleeding, it emphasizes local therapy and assessing comorbidities associated with each individual agent. If relevant comorbidities are discovered, dosing reductions might be on the table. The decision to continue or interrupt therapy is based on the need for intervention or transfusion to manage the bleeding, but reversal is not recommended. Yeah, so let's take that a little bit further in that decision. Does the bleeding require hospitalization? So this is for non-major surgery, right? Surgical versus procedural interventions or transfusions. And the next decision point there is yes or no. So if there is a requirement for hospitalization um, related to the surgical procedure or there's transfusions involved, even though it's considered minor bleeding for the procedure, um, you stop the oral anticoagulant. Then you provide local therapy or manual compression, depending on what's going on. Uh, And if the patient is not on a vitamin K antagonist, consider two to five milligrams PO or IV of vitamin K. Then you obviously provide some form of supportive care as well as volume resuscitation. And if it's applicable, then you can consider stopping the antiplatelet agents. Now, remember, we went through the clotting cascade, and so there's various elements now that our, that our anticoagulants will address on that cascade. And then you assess for and manage the comorbidities, as Terry has mentioned, and, uh, that may contribute to bleeding. And we can think of a few off the top of our head, you know, thrombocytopenia, liver disease, or hepatic encephalop- uh, encephalopathy, um, uremia, those types of things. And then you obviously consider, you know, what type of bleeding at the surgical site itself. Um, so those are considerations that would be in the yes category. Now, the no category is considering oral anticoagulants, um, and it's provided that there is an appropriate indication that's present, providing local therapy or manual compression as in the other decision tree. And then if the patient is on concomitant antiplatelet therapy, then you assess risk and benefit of stopping that antiplatelet agent. And then you assess for and manage comorbidities as you did earlier with the other decision, if the decision is yes. So you determine if the dosing of the oral anticoagulant is appropriate. So now, for major bleeding events, typically cessation of therapy is the immediate call, right? So resuscitation becomes now the focus, and that document that we're kind of going over is an overview of steps that include recommendations for IV access, fluid administration, transfusion, and and the like. Most perioperative um, providers, including CRNAs, are well-versed in managing bleeding and hemodynamic instability. You know, absolutely, Gary. And the modern approach to bleeding management often relies on algorithmic approach. Like so many things in anesthesia, guide us our behaviors and interventions. And combining viscoelastic testing or TEG with platelet function analysis. And platelets really are our old buddies. And specific hemostatic factors come into play depending on the institution and the situation. But we'll go over an algorithm here when the bleeding is critical or life-threatening. So, for example, if the bleeding is critical or life-threatening, we want to first stop the oral anticoagulants and the antiplatelet agents. And if the patient is on a vitamin K antagonist, we're going to give 5 to 10 milligrams of IV vitamin K. And we're going to 
new local therapy, Bovi, manual compression, et cetera, et cetera, and provide supportive care and volume resuscitation, which is so critical. Now, we're going to assess for and manage comorbidities that could contribute to the bleeding. For example, as Gary said, thrombocytopenia, uremia, liver disease, and the like, and consider surgical procedure management of the bleeding site itself. And eventually consider uh, administering reversal or hemostatic agents, and we will go into that in greater detail. Now, if the bleeding is at a critical th- is not at a critical site or life threatening, uh, we'll still stop the oral anticoagulant, provide the local therapy and manual compression, and if the patient is on the vitamin K antagonist, give five to ten milligrams of IV vitamin K and provide that supportive care and volume resuscitation. And if applicable, we're going to stop the antiplatelet agents as well. And we're going to assess for and manage comorbidities that could contribute to the bleeding. For example, the thrombocytopenia, uremia, liver disease, and so forth. And consider surgical procedure management of the bleeding site. And ask ourselves, did those uh, interventions control the bleeding? If the answer is yes, and the patient is stable, we're going to consider restarting the anticoagulation a little bit later. Yeah, and that's right, Terry. And just just for our listeners so that you know, we are talking in this scenario with direct acting oral anticoagulants. Um, So just so that people, I know that when we start getting into some of these agents that there's going to be a little bit more nuances of uh, where they're going to work on the clotting cascade and et cetera. So when it does come to reversing anticoagulation, especially in the context of major bleeding or urgent surgical procedures, that decision now becomes imperative for nurse anesthetists. And so this document that we're going through does outline specific reversal agents for life-threatening bleeding, not just vitamin K, as well as situations that are not resolved by conservative measures. However, the document does stress reversal is not recommended until more conservative measures are exhausted. And so, you know, it's sort of that chicken, which one came first or whatever, chicken before the egg, egg before the chicken. Um, You know, it just depends on where you are in the perioperative process. Like, are you already in surgery versus are you making a decision, do I go back or do I cancel this case? And uh, we all know how much surgeons love when we cancel their cases. (laughs) We sure do. Chickens and eggs, and what about French toast? We don't want to forget about that. (laughs) And it's important. I mean, it really is important to note that safety concerns associated with reversing the effects of direct-acting oral coagulants is critical. The perioperative period itself brings about significant alters in coagulation. And, you know, I think we all know that post-surgically, that is a a pro-coagulant state, uh, pro-hemostatic state, uh, which is a natural extension of our body's hemostatic mechanisms Plus, transfusions and factor-concentrated administration can add complexities and alter the thrombotic risk for these patients. And one more alert to consider is the independent risk of stroke associated with perioperative atrial fibrillation. Making the decision to reverse anticoagulants even more nuanced when we're making those considerations, particularly for those patients that do have atrial fibrillation. So as we continue our journey throughout this 2017 ACC expert consensus decision pathway, we will kind of go into some of those nuances and considerations for bleeding management. Hey, CRNAs, it's time to simplify your continuing education. 
Welcome to CRNAEducation.com, your trusted provider for CPC core modules and a plethora of Class A CE credits. You can explore 43 detailed articles covering various anesthesia topics, all from your favorite device, anytime, anywhere. And with over 40 pharmacology CE credits, meet your state board requirements effortlessly. Whether you need a few credits or everything to recertify, we have what you need. Just complete your credits online without any subscriptions or recurring charges. You can trust in our 100% CRNA-owned platform, established in 2011, ensuring you receive the best in customer service and educational content. Ready to learn? Go to crnaeducation.com making continuing education easy and accessible. And don't forget that support is always a quick email or a text or phone call away. To sign up and learn more, just go to crnaeducation.com. Okay, listeners, we're going to zoom in on one specific group of patients, those requiring emergent and semi-urgent procedures who find themselves caught between a rock and a hard place. Those with a high thrombotic risk and an increased bleeding risk as well. It's a delicate balance and a presents a unique challenge to us. This group includes high-risk atrial fibrillation <coughs> patients and those on direct-acting oral anticoagulants for acute venous thromboembolism. And here's the twist, Terry. The current 2017 ACC expert consensus decision pathway document doesn't address them as well as it could, at least in my opinion. Managing the thrombotic and bleeding risk in these patient demands, complex risk-benefit discussions in order to make that multidisciplinary decision. And as I've said, I, you know, our surgeons are very tickled when we cancel those cases due to these concerns. They don't like that stuff. <laughs> but let's talk about bridging therapy, Gary. The bridging anticoagulation in patients who require temporary interruption of warfarin therapy study guides us some and gives us some insights. In the intermediate risk groups, those with a CHAD score of CHADS 2 score of less than five. Bridging therapy might increase bleeding rates with no impact on embolic events. It's a bit of a balancing act, and safety data isn't entirely in its favor, especially for the highest-risk patients. And to get a better sense of the meaning of a CHAD score, you can search for CHAD score in your favorite search engine, and Science Direct has a really nice explanation of all the details and factors that go into assessing a CHAD score. Yeah, that's right, Terry. And the ACC suggests continuing therapy in minor procedures, like percutaneous device insertion, which is crucial to consider in, the, in these scenarios, especially with the higher risk groups, right? Uh, for patients with acute VT or a history of atrial thrombus, the ECDP encourages thinking about measures for uh, things like inferior vena cava filters or left atrial appendage exclusion devices. Now, I haven't seen any of those, but... Um, Sounds dangerous. It does sound dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> now, while these recommendations are made for patients after a major bleed, or at least some of them, um, you know, they should be considered in the perioperative setting on a case-by-case -case basis. And ideally, if you can get an evaluation of the patient prior to the day of surgery, that's optimal. Boy, it wouldn't be. And so you know, we're going to turn our attention here for just a second to, to platelet administration. You know, the ACC advises against routine transfusion in patients on antiplatelet agents. 
So they point to evidence that shows that this practice can actually lead to higher odds of death in patients that are experiencing an intracranial hemorrhage. So it underscores the importance of goal-directed transfusion strategies, especially in more complicated clinical situations. Indeed, Terry. Laboratory testing, as detailed for each agent, may play critical or crucial roles in decision-making outside of emergencies. You know, in these intricate clinical situations that require a case-by-case evaluation, if you will. Let's set the stage for a deeper exploration for our listeners. Anticoagulation, a cornerstone of medical management, has been a key player since the FDA-approved warfarin in 1954. Wow, that's even before I was born. That's a long time ago. (laughs) Atrial fibrillation is the most common arrhythmia and poses an increased risk of death for both men and women. Its prevalence increases with age, with additional risk factors, including hypertension, family history, diabetes, obesity, heart failure, ischemic heart disease, hyperthyroidism, chronic kidney disease, and our favorite, heavy alcohol use. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, atrial fibrillation alone accounts for about 15% of strokes annually, making it a prominent risk factor uh, for those that are going under anesthesia. So anticoagulation and atrial fibrillation significantly slashes the risk of stroke and systemic embolism by 64%, reduces the all-cause mortality by 26%. That's pretty huge. Now, shifting to venous thromboembolisms, VTE or pulmonary embolisms, is also a leading cause of preventable hospital deaths, contributing to up to 10% of hospital fatalities across the United States. Wow, that's a lot. And here's a critical point. While parenteral options are available in the hospital setting, oral anticoagulants offer a convenient alternative, eliminating the need for intravenous or subcutaneous therapy. And studies indicate that even after hospital discharge, patients remain at an increased risk of venous thromboembolism for up to 30 days. Remember, this is a hypercoagulable state, and the rates of symptomatic venous thromboembolism double in the first 21 days after discharge. Indeed, Terry. And here's another eye-opening finding from hospital safety studies. They show that a staggering 74%, yeah, 74% of deep vein thromboses occur in the first month after uh, discharge from the hospital. Now, this wealth of data strongly advocates for longer durations of anticoagulations for VTE prophylaxis. So as we journey deeper into the realm of anticoagulation management, keep these fundamental ins, uh, aspects in mind as we're going through this discussion. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I remember the last thing that they did for me before I left the hospital six years ago after I had an overnight stay was giving me a shot of low molecular weight heparin. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh boy, thank you so much. A little poke <laughs> with a needle before I go home. Nice. Faithful listeners, we're going to shift our focus to the evolution of anticoagulant agents. And now, for over five decades, warfarin, a vitamin K antagonist, it stood as the sole oral option for outpatient management of conditions like atrial fibrillation and venous thromboembolism for both prophylaxis and treatment. 
However, a groundbreaking shift occurred in 2011 when the FDA approved Degastrapan, a direct thrombin inhibitor. I must say that again, Debigatran. Yes. What a great name, Debigatran. All right, let's hear it. Everybody together, Debigatran. <laughs> it's a big it one. Offers, it is a big <laughs> tran, offering a new dimension in stroke prevention and non-valvular atrial fibrillation and venous thromboembolism measure. Say it again like you mean it, Debigatran. <laughs> exactly, Terry. And get ready for some more tongue twisters because in subsequent years, witness the FDA's approval of other factor 10A inhibitors like Rivaroxaban. So I almost feel like I'm in the club, right? Like Rivaroxaban, <laughs> yeah, Pixaban, and Endoxaban, each serving various indications, including non-valvular atrial fibrillation, VTE, prophylaxis and treatment, VTE recurrence, and then we have Batrixaban. It almost sounds like a cereal. Uh, another factor 10A inhibitor entering the scene in around 2017, specifically indicated for VTE prophylaxis in hospitalized patients with medical illnesses. And so that's an important one, right? Given the statistics that we've, that we've raised here a little bit earlier in, in the episode. Yeah, and notwithstanding the difficulty of pronouncing these drug names, uh, the, the the term novel oral anticoagulant initially described these agents. You know, and that really does highlight their innovative mechanisms compared to you know traditional anticoagulation therapies. Now, however, as language has evolved, the description transitioned to non-vitamin <coughs> K antagonist oral anticoagulants or NAOAC to distinguish them from warfarin. But a survey uh, by the International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis found that this term was occasionally misconstrued or confused to mean no anticoagulation, which is not what that means. Yeah, and to clear the confusion, the society actually recommended using direct oral anticoagulants, or DOAC, to describe factor 10A inhibitors and direct thrombin inhibitors. So for the sake of clarity, we're going to stick to the DOAC throughout this article discussion. So as we delve into the intricacies of these new agents, keep in mind the transformative shift from warfarin to direct acting oral anticoagulants. But the game changed in 2011 when the FDA gave the nod to Dabigatran, a direct thrombin inhibitor. This marked a significant shift providing new avenues for stroke prevention in non-valvular atrial fibrillation, as well as addressing the VTE prophylaxis and treatment regimens. Now, the terminology went through a transition, initially called novel oral anticoagulants, for their innovative mechanisms, as we've alluded to how detailed uh, the clotting cascade is and where these things actually work. So it then later shifted to non-vitamin K anti antagonist oral anticoagulants, or NOACs, to distinguish them from warfarin. Now, due to the potential misunderstanding of NOACs, was mistaken to mean no anticoagulation. So the International Society of Thrombus and Hemostasis conducted a survey um, finding that there was this misunderstanding, and, and quite honestly, uh, somewhat dangerous. 
You know, before we go too much further, uh, Terry, maybe let's review some of those, um, you know, pharmacologic and maybe some of the monitoring needed to be done with some of these agents like the dabigatran and the apixaban and the riva roxaban as well as endoxaban and the newer one betrixaban um you know each of these agents uh you know so dabigatran riva roxaban as well as uh adoxaban Typically, their absorption time is about two hours. Onset is somewhere around two hours also. The half-time elimination, though, is for dabigatran. Uh, yeah, dabigatran is about 12 to 17 hours. Uh, it is not quite as long as the newer agent, uh, Batrixaban, uh, and that one is about 19 to 27 hours. So if we have scheduled surgeries and we're considering pausing these agents, you can see where we've got to consider this well in advance. And so, you know, the, the shorter uh, halftime eliminations for some of the other agents range between about 5 to 12, 5 to 13 hours. That's like a Pixaban and Rivaroxaban. You know, maybe, Terry, talk a little bit about um, some of the um, maybe qualitative or quantitative monitoring you know, I think probably one of the more common ones are the two, the Dibiga, uh, Dibigatran as well as the uh, Apixaban. Yeah. So the thing is, these uh, drugs like Dibigatran, you know, the, the the assessment of their their effects is not simple. You know, not like in the good old days when we would measure PT and PTT. And for example, in the case of Dibigatran, we have to actually subject the specimen to chromatography and mass spectrometry. You know, um, there's a uh, escarine clotting time that can be used and, you know, chemogenic assays. Now, the rest of them, apixaban, uh, rivaraxaban, adoxaban, and batrixaban. Oh, I love that name. It is yeah. so, it's romantic. It, it you know, is. We can measure. And it's making me hungry, Terry. <laughs> I know. I just, I want to pour a bowl of it milk. right now. <laughs> Uh, but basically, uh, we're going to measure anti-factor 10A activity, uh, and and it requires liquid chromatography, tandem mass spectrometry. So again, not something you're going to do uh, in the kitchen in between cases. No. <laughs> um, now, qualitative monitoring for these factors can be done through an, a, uh, um, an APTT or a PTPTT. Uh, and again, uh, when we, we consider those things and get those results, then we can talk about reversal agents and alternatives. Um, and that gets really complicated. Yeah, that sure does. Yeah, okay. Well, maybe talk a little bit more about the survey's uh, conclusions, Terry. Yeah. So the survey concluded with a preference for the, the nomenclature of a direct oral anticoagulant by about 58% of those that were surveyed. And about about half also expressed a preference for target-specific oral anticoagulant, or TSOAC, um, and also non-VKA oral anticoagulant. So there's all kinds of alphabet soup out there referring to these agents. And the ISTH recommended against the use of NOAC and suggested direct-acting oral anticoagulants to be described both factor 10A inhibitors and direct thrombin inhibitors as well. So for the rest of our discussion today, we're going to stick with the term direct oral anticoagulant uh, or DOAC to represent these groundbreaking new and novel uh, and important agents in anticoagulant therapy. 
So let's dive into the complexities of managing these patients on anticoagulants undergoing non-cardiac surgery, folks. And cardiac surgery is another ballgame and a a discussion for another day. Now, anesthesiologists, anesthesia providers, and surgeons face a critical decision when to stop anticoagulation in the perioperative period. And this decision is crucial as stopping it can abruptly lead to rebound hypercoagulability and all the complications we've talked about, strokes and venous thromboembolism, while continuing anticoagulation increases the risk of surgical blood loss. And again, refer you back to our consensus paper that was published in the Journal of Cardiothoracic and Vascular and Anesthesia, which really specifically highlights the onset time and the half time of elimination for these agents. Exactly, Terry. And there's a specific concern as we start diving into the world of anesthesia and how it impacts what we do, and certainly patients taking anticoagulants that we're considering for neuroaxial anesthesia. And that big concern is hematoma formation, right, which can be catastrophic for the patient, creating lifelong paralysis, unfortunately, affecting mobility and motor function. And in rare rare cases, thankfully, Uh, as I've noted, is it can lead to paralysis. Yeah, and the landscape has really evolved with the rise of these direct-acting oral anticoagulants. And reversal strategies have become more complex. In emergency situations, a risk-benefit analysis has to help us determine the correct approach. And we're going to categorize that situation as being urgent and emergent, or semi-urgent or non-urgent. And the choice of reversal agent depends on the specific anticoagulant and the urgency of the search situation. Yeah, that's right. And it doesn't stop there. Drug interactions and food interactions with DOACs add another layer of consideration. For instance, the uh, drug dabigatran, uh, which is a P-glycoprotein or PGP, inhibitor or inducer can affect metabolism as well as action. So co-administration with aspirin or Plavix should be closely monitored due to elevated risks of bleeding. Other things like St. John's wort, a potent enzyme inducer, may lower plasma concentrations of DOACs. And, you know, we start getting in now to liver enzymes like the cytochrome P450 system, And when we start ramping up those, they start reducing the efficacy or enhancing the efficacy of some of these DOACs. Absolutely, Gary. These interactions underline the importance of understanding each patient's unique clinical situation to provide the best, safest level of care. As we navigate the intricacies of perioperative considerations for patients on anticoagulants, stay tuned for more insights into the evolving landscape of reversal strategies and therapeutic advancements. And there's a lot going on out there. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. 
So let's break down some of these agents in the intricate world of anticoagulants and their clinical considerations. And first up, we've got the vitamin K epoxide reductase inhibitors. Now these include, and these are hard to say, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> warfarin, fenprocumin, and acinocumarol. Now, that wasn't so bad. No. Now, why are they called that? Well, vitamin K is essential for the synthesis of clotting factors 2, 7, 9, and 10, as well as anticoagulant inhibitory proteins C and S and Z. Now, these drugs indirectly inhibit vitamin K reductase, disrupting the synthesis of these vital clotting factors. Now, despite their effectiveness, these medications, which were discovered back in the around 1941, come with their fair share of challenges. Like warfarin, for example, has a narrow therapeutic index, meaning the difference between therapeutic and toxic dose is very small, very tight. This coupled with various confounding variables like age, weight, diet, like those aren't issues today in anesthesia, right? Make patient Correct, responses. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, high uh, unpredictability. And, and let's just throw in, you know, uh, pharmacogenomics, uh, a person's genetic makeup, uh, and other things that they may be on, particularly with diets and supplements with ramping up or, or uh, muting their cytochrome P450 system that uh, metabolizes these drugs or lack thereof. So regular monitoring is crucial to avoid complications. Hey, and let's not forget about genetic variation. A substantial portion of the population carries the alpha allele of the vitamin K epoxide reductase complex, making them more sensitive to these medications. And this, along with the fact that they're metabolized by hepatic cytochrome P450 enzyme pathways, makes them prone to drug interactions. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you see not just the genetics, but also our foods. Um, and we talked about St. John's Ward as another one of those examples. So now, you know, moving on to a broader picture of anti-platelet uh, agents, uh, these drugs play pivotal roles in preventing thrombotic events by inhibiting platelet activation, like acetosilic acid or ASA. COX inhibitors is certainly a stalewart in primary prevention. So however, you know, genetic polymorphism, as Terry has mentioned, and diseases... Uh, or disease processes, if you will, can render aspirin a little bit less effective for some of these patients that do show up. Truly spoken, Gary. And P2Y12 antagonists like clopidogrel, uh, sometimes called Plavix, Prasagrel, Ticogrelo, and Cancogrelo target platelet receptors to prevent activation. But, and it's a big but, they come with susceptibility to drug interactions. And, you know, one of the things I tell my students is that all the the oral supplements that people take to begin with, with G, garlic, ginkgo, um, <laughs> ginseng, they all inhibit platelet aggregation as well. So, um, you know, we don't often ask uh, as clearly as we should about um, the the nutraceuticals that patients take, but we should because, you know, drugs like clopidogrel, prasugrel, and ticogrelo, which are metabolized through the cytochrome P450 enzymes, can actually be... Um, potentiated by those oral nutraceuticals. So this demands caution and co-administration with other drugs as well. So for example, Ticogrelo inhibits cytochrome P453A4, cytochrome P453A2, cytochrome 2D6. Oh my, lots of cytochromes, potentially requiring dose adjustments to patients on digoxin and other agents as well. Yeah, you know, and I'm kind of surprised that we don't have 
just routine lab work now when these prescriptions are being made to patients because, you know, I think we've all seen working in the ICU uh, patients that have falls and, you know, they got these horrific, you know, bruising and echematic areas uh, from head to toe, um, likely because, you know, they're either not metabolizing these agents uh, efficiently and, uh, you know, we end up with significant bleeds just from patient falls uh, at home specifically. Yeah. So, sure yeah. So let's let's pound on that uh, platelet a little bit more and we'll move along to glycoprotein 2B3A inhibitors. And I remember these back in the 90s in the, in the ICUs, things like uh, abciximab and uh, tirofiban and uh, eptidafibetide. Do you want to say that 10 times? No. (laughs) Uh, These agents obviously specifically target the platelet surface receptors. They inhibit the adhesion of things like fibrinogen and other uh, clotting factors. Now, here's the crucial point with specifically abciximab, and it uh, has a longer duration, and therefore it requires, uh, you know, holding that medication at least for uh, 48 hours, rather, holding it at least 48 hours before surgery to minimize bleeding risk. Now, as we've said, we're going to get into some of the reversal agents, um, but, you know, this is one of those ones that patients, when they're on it, you need to substantially uh, plan ahead, uh, certainly uh, 48 hours before uh, any type of surgery to make sure that uh, they don't have the significant bleeding risks. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And you know what I tell anybody that will listen, and that's not everybody, but uh, my students, if, if your patient is on a drug that you can't pronounce or spell, you really need to look it up because there's a good chance it's going to do something bad. And now we even, and there's other drugs like phosphodiesterase inhibitors like celestazole and dipyrimidol. And dipyrimidol or presanthine mm-hmm. has been around forever. Ever. And they prevent the degradation of um, cyclic AMP, cyclic GMP. And these are crucial uh, platelet activation substances. So um, even though they have a secondary vasodilatory effect, these drugs can lead to hypotension as a common side effect as well as interfere with platelet aggregation. Yeah, so switching gears to, let's just say, some broader considerations, the categories of drugs discussed, uh, you know, here so far in this episode, of significant impacts on patients undergoing surgery. And we need to be cognizant and versant in it. And, and as a note here, we're going we're gonna to put a bunch of references up on um, the podcast site uh, for basically all of our listeners' reference, because obviously we can't pay all lip service to the complexities of this. As I said earlier, it's like a three-credit hour just in anticoagulants. So... So whether it's under understanding the complexities of anticoagulants, the nuances of antiplatelet therapy, or the potential interactions that these drugs can have, perioperative management does require and demand a meticulous approach by every single CRNA out there. Yeah. And, you know, another thing we need to think about here is the, um, the really fascinating spectrum of antithrombin activators, particularly focusing on a a drug that we're really familiar with, um, unfractionated heparin, uh, and its newer cousin, the low molecular weight heparins, and Fondaparinux, which is a factor 10 inhibitor. These agents play a crucial role in inhibiting coagulation factors, primarily by reducing the effectiveness of factor 10A and 2A, and by binding to and activating antithrombin molecules. 
Yeah, that's right, Terry. And, and, and you know, with unfractionated uh, heparins, uh, while effective, uh, there is some intricacies that uh, we need to be concerned with. It binds not only to the antithrombin complexes, but it also saturates other complexes like plasma proteins, endothelial cells, as well as macrophages. You know, this complex distribution necessitates a titration to effect due to the variable binding of these agents. Uh, so making standard doses really is less practical. And, and you know, uh, I think as every single one of us going through anesthesia training have always been told, you can always give a little bit more, but once you give something, you can't get it back. So titration is critical. Boy, it sure is. And, you know, and, and the half-life of unfractionated heparin is dose-dependent, as are its anticoagulant effects. Its, its uh, anticoagulation effects are not linear. Uh, they tend to be a little bit more geometric. And they range from approximately 30 minutes to 150 minutes, depending on the dose. So it's vital to mention the rare but documented cases, too, of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, which comes in a couple of forms. But the worst one is when antibodies uh, are targeted and activated, uh, uh, activate platelets heparin-induced thrombocytopenia type 2, which is a potentially leading to severe thrombotic complications. Yeah, Terry, have you ever managed somebody in the ICU with uh, HIT? Uh, no, it's it, it's, it's pretty ugly. Uh, it, it, yeah, so I remember working uh, uh, South Texas down on the border of Mexico many moons ago uh, running an ICU, and um, we had this one lady had a very successful cardiac surgery, um, you know, we did a bypass, I think it was times five or six, um, balloon pump, the whole nine yards recovers well from all of that stuff up until about the last day. And, um, had noticed, went into the room and noticed a bunch of petechiae on the bottom of her feet. And I was like, Hmm, this is odd. So I call up, uh, the attending surgeon and I said, um, you know, I was just going through and said, she's progressing well. We got the balloon pumps out still have an arterial line in, you know, heparinized fluid is what we were using at the time. Now that everybody's removing heparin, now our A-line's all dampen out, and then you got to pull them out and restart them. But anyway, um, you know, didn't think anything of it. Surgeon says, I'll check it on rounds in the morning. And uh, lo and behold, we send off some blood testing, and all of her uh, coagulation pathway was way out of whack. And so she developed heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, and it took us four weeks to manage her. And, and we gave, I think we counted by the end, it was 260 blood uh, units of blood products over that hospitalization. Parts of her fingertips became necrotic. Um, she almost like uh, Raynaud's uh, syndrome. And um, we thought we were going to have to amputate feet, uh, fingers. It was, it was a real production. And uh, first time I'd ever witnessed it, um, and I remember it was just, it was hell to get that assignment in the ICU just because you, you knew you were going to be transfusing all night long. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, we're not doing rapid transfusions like we do in the operating room, but um, it certainly um, created a mental note um, as to uh, not a, uh, a benign agent, uh, heparin. So, For sure. you know, yeah. So, you know, contrasting the variability with that, Low molecular weight heparins do offer a little bit more predictive alternative with reliable weight-based dosing. Its longer half-life of six to eight hours means that it's less frequent monitoring, so that's a good thing. 
Uh, certainly, except in, uh, the exception is within certain subpopulations like the elderly, pregnant moms, um, and those that have reduced renal function, uh, obviously, because they've got some coagulation dysfunction. And, uh, you know, the one thing is that low molecular weight heparins are contraindicated in patients with a glomerular filtration rate, or GFR, less than 30 mils per minute. So for all of you listening out there, uh, you know, when there is a prescription or, you know, you're doing a case interoperative and you know you've got some renal impairment, uh, GFR less than 30, you know, I think a lot of um, certainly uh, acute care facilities, they will have these labs. Uh, We already have it embedded in our chart. So when we're dosing antibiotics, pretty much everything that we're dosing, when we start seeing that trigger of less than 30, it raises suspicion. So we're looking at the drugs to make sure that uh, we're not going to have a problem with clearance. So that Yeah, amount. that low GFR is, uh, you know, that should be a red flag. Um, and, you know, but um, something we got to be aware of. And just as a, a reminder, if somebody does have a history of um, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, they can't get regular unfractionated or low molecular weight heparin. They might be uh, taking a drug or need to be on a drug like Argatraban, which um, I have used on patients in the OR that have a history of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And of course, Argatraban is a direct thrombin inhibitor, uh, as is another drug called bivalirudin. And these agents act by directly and reversibly binding to the active site on thrombin, preventing the activation of fibrinogen uh, to fibrin, which is one of the really important roles of thrombin. And they're particularly valuable as an alternative in patients, as I said, with a history of heparin-induced thrombocytopenic reactions. Yeah, you know, and there's short durations of action, a two to four hours for, let me get this right, Argatroban, and one hour for by Valerudin, coupled with minimal uh, drug uh, interactions and clearance uh, through urine and feces, makes them stand out. I'm sure they would. Uh, uh, you know, specifically to the thrombin site, uh, contributes to their favorable safety profiles. You know, I help my students remember these by telling them that by Valerudin and, and other Herudins are derivations of leech spit. Yes. Which really... They like yeah, that. <laughs> that's right. And we, we did some of those studies here at the Texas Medical yeah, Center. Yeah, it's good like, stuff. Uh, Leeches you, are making a comeback. They are making a comeback. And, and I remember there was a call out for uh, if you want to be a participant in, the, uh, in one of the studies. And I'm like, uh, yeah, that's what I want to do is I want to go in and have a bunch of leeches put on me so they can yeah. uh, anticoagulate me. <laughs> I can't wait. That sounds like a good time. All right, so uh, we are also going to change our focus now to thrombolytics, specifically alteplase and tissue-type plasminogen activator. Now, unlike anticoagulants that prevent clot formation, thrombolytics break down preformed thrombi by activating plasmin from its precursor plasminogen. Alteplase and TPA are approved for treating acute embolic, non-hemorrhagic strokes and significantly impede thrombosis for more than 27 hours after they're administered. That's right, Terry. And, you know, these agents do come with their caveats, you know. Their use is limited to a narrow therapeutic, uh, you know, time window, three to four and a half hours, post-embolic event. And within this window... Uh, you know, they pose that an increased risk of hemorrhagic conversion and early death is possible. So recent data even suggests direct neurotoxicity of TPA mm. uh, contributes wow. to the inflammatory response of post-ischemic insult in some patients. Oh, and dibigatran, another, uh, you know, innovative option acts through reversal direct 
thrombin inhibition. And clinical trials like the RELI demonstrate its efficacy in stroke prevention to reduce um, embolic events. And However, it's not without its uh, own challenges, right? Severe dyspepsia has led in trials to the decontinuation of significant portions of patients from that actual RELI trial. Yep. Um, and so that brings us to, to turn our attention to doxaban, which is approved for stroke prevention and atrial fibrillation and venothromboembolism prophylaxis. It has once daily dosing and significant reductions in major bleeding events compared to warfarin. Adoxaban has made its mark. Its clinical trials like the N-Gage Timmy AF48 underscore its superiority in preventing strokes and minimizing bleeding risk. Yeah, and then there's the uh, Prasigril, a uh, pro-drug yeah. offering pharmacological benefits over Clopidogrel. And faster onset, longer duration, you know, it's got increased potency and less variability in patient's response, make it really a compelling option for treating acute coronary syndromes in combination with lifelong aspirin therapy. So it's a good drug. Yeah, good drug. Last but not least, Rivaraxaban, a reversible <coughs> factor 10A inhibitor, has demonstrated non-inferiority warfarin in prevention of stroke and venous thromboembolism treatment. You know, in recent investigations, even position it as a potential treatment in acute coronary syndromes and arterial disease as well, showing clear reductions in myocardial infarctions and strokes, albeit with a little bit higher risk of hemorrhagic events in some contexts. Yeah, and as we navigate sort of that evolving landscape of anticoagulants and thrombolytics, it's clear that the newer options are enhancing predictability, they are reducing the monitoring needs, and they do improve patient outcomes. You know, the era of personalized targeted therapies is now indeed upon us. So let's shine a spotlight on idarucissimab. Say that 10 times. It's a revolutionary FDA-approved reversal agent for NOACs. And so now we're getting into those specifically designed agents that counteract the effects of things like dabigatran, the big wow, one. dabigatran. You know what, Gary? You're absolutely right. That idarucissimab is a humanized monoclonal antibody fragment with an impressive binding affinity. 350 times that of thrombin. And it forms an irreversible one-to-one -one complex with dabigatran, eliminating it from the body through the kidneys. Well, almost like Sugamidex and rocuronium. Yeah. Importantly, it doesn't interfere with coagulation cascade or induce hypercoagulable states, which makes it a pretty good advantage. Yeah, so idarucissimab, um, you know, it's delivery involves two subsequent infusions. And the first infusion is a 2.5 grams that's administered over 10 to 15 minutes. And then another 5 gram dose, uh, if clinically uh, relevant bleeding occurs, phase 3 studies have demonstrated its efficacy, producing rapid reversal of dabigatran effects in various patient groups. So, you know, in these uncontrollable bleeding situations, where patients are undergoing or are undergoing um, surgery, that there's a concern. Um, certainly a good drug to have in your back pocket. Nonetheless, it is a little pricey. <laughs> Stuff's not cheap, but it works pretty darn good. The <laughs> infusions um, normally are going to uh, 
restore some good hemostasis in about 92% of surgical patients uh, with the average bleeding cessation time uh, lasting for as long as 11, almost 11 and a half hours in uncontrolled bleeding groups. Now, thrombotic events were rare in those studies, and overall, iodorucisumab showcased its effectiveness as a reversal agent for dibigatran in emergency situations. And as Gary said, they're not giving this stuff away. No, not at all. And and so let's shift to another agent, um, which is also as uh, pricey. Um, and, you know, that drug is called Andonexant Alpha. It's a recombinant factor 10A variant that's currently, it's not actually under FDA uh, review. You can actually get it. That one also is up in around the price of about $50,000 uh, for that agent. And so it has three modifications to the uh, native factor 10A by binding to several oral factor 10A inhibitors like the apixaban, the rivaroxaban, as well as the edoxaban, and my favorite cereal, betrixaban. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Wow. Wow, Gary, I'll tell you that Andexanet not only reverses the anti-factor 10A activity of these inhibitors, but also competes with factor 10A for binding to tissue factor pathway inhibitor. So phase two studies have demonstrated dose-dependent reversal of anti-factor 10A activity in healthy volunteers with sustained reversal achieved through intravenous bolus administration then followed by a continuous infusion. Yeah, and so that dosing on that is, you know, it's a first-line agent for all of those other um, anticoagulants uh, that we've listed. And that dose is 400 milligrams IV bolus. Uh, and then you give an infusion of four milligrams per minute for two hours. And I will tell you, this one works just as quickly as the other agent or its parent compound. And, you know, patients on um, edoxaban as well as uh, batrixaban, the 800 milligram IV bolus is required and the infusion is uh, doubled up to 8 milligrams per minute uh, over two hours. Um, the second line is a 4-FPCC, which is an abbreviation for uh, four-factor prothrombin complex concentrate which typically you will give uh, 50 units per kilo, or APCC, which is activated prothrombin complex concentrate, also at uh, 50 units per kilo. And the max dosing on these agents, certainly APCC, is 2,000 units. So not cheap agents, and certainly, wow. uh, yeah, they, uh, they do the job uh, when need be. And certainly, you know... Canceling a surgery versus reversing um, requires some pretty delicate considerations. So, you know, the ongoing phase three trial of uh, Anexa 4 trial is, all, uh, you know, shedding newer light onto the efficacy in these patients with major bleeding after administration of apixaban, adoxaban, as well as anoxaparin and rivaroxaban. You know, the preliminary data currently is um, looking at patients taking uh, rivaroxaban and apixaban, and it shows substantial decreases in anti-factor 10A activity with uh, significantly acceptable hemostasis. Although thrombotic events and other complications have been noted, so that is risk, right? So when you reverse these uh, anticoagulants, um, you do run the risk of developing clots or microthrombi that can then um, enhance the complications. 
wouldn't it be nice, Gary, if we had a universal antidote for these oral agents? And lo and behold, here we have Perantidag, and I'll say that one, Siraparantag. What a great name, Siraparantag. <laughs> Remember that one, ladies and gentlemen, coming to a pharmacy close to you, which is we're waiting for FDA approval, but it's designed to reverse all the direct oral anticoagulants, heparins and calcium chelators. Now that is a bunch of stuff. So let's say that name one more time, because when you see it, you'll want to recognize it. <laughs> Siraparantag. Wow. Saranparantag, a synthetic cationic molecule. It utilizes hydrogen bond formation and charge interactions to bind all of our DOACs. And, you know, in, in, um, in a phase two trial or study, it demonstrated rapid reduction in whole blood clotting times uh, within 10 minutes, interestingly, after wow. uh, adoxaban administration. So it maintains a stability for about 24 hours without any serious adverse events or thrombogenic potential, uh, certainly in this study. Well, you know, that's right. And, you know, even though siraparantag holds a lot of promise, there are concerns about its clinical utility and the use of WBCT as a measure, whole blood clotting time is what I should say, as a measure of its reversal in the real world clinical <coughs> setting. The future of anticoagulation reversal is undeniably evolving and new drugs are on the horizon. And these agents represent critical, crucial strides in enhancing patient safety. As we eagerly await further developments and FDA approval, sometimes that takes a little bit too long, but, you know, mm. the <laughs> pursuit of effective reversal agents continues to be a pivotal aspect of modern anticoagulant um, or anticoagulation management and certainly has an impact on anesthesia care. So let's switch gears a little bit from anticoagulation reversals now and dive into the intricate interplay of anticoagulants and regional anesthesia, a critical consideration in modern anesthesia practice that we need to be well aware of. Yeah, and in my entire anesthesia career, Gary, I have really been <coughs> interested in and a proponent of regional anesthesia. I really think it offers some great advantages to patients. And particularly neuroaxial anesthesia has gained prominence due to its association with positive outcomes, like reduced hospital admissions, post-ambulatory surgery, uh, decreased thromboembolic events, uh, improved post-operative analgesia, and even patient satisfaction. Yeah, that's right, Terry. And it's really crucial to acknowledge its risks, uh, you know, in itself, not to mention mixing it in with anticoagulation. Um, but neuroaxial anesthesia brings concerns such as peripheral nerve damage, intraarterial injections, headaches, and most notably bleeding. You know, although rare, thankfully, uh, the occurrence of bleeding leading to hematoma formation is particularly feared due to its potential for severe morbidity, and that is up to and including paralysis, as we've mentioned earlier. Yeah, and the scary part about that is uh, even prompt uh, surgical neurosurgical intervention when a uh, epidural he or spinal hematoma has been discovered doesn't portend a good clinical outcome. And so that's where guidelines like those developed by the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Management, or ASRA, become really paramount. Now, their aim is to navigate the delicate balance between the benefits and risks of performing regional anesthesia in anticoagulated patients. Indeed, Terry. Let's start by exploring the relationship between antiplatelet therapies and neuroaxial anesthesia. Initial concerns about the complications 
especially with spinal hematomas with co-administration of things like our NSAIDs, our COX-2 inhibitors, and aspirin have evolved over time. You know, while early data raised warnings, recent substantial evidence doesn't support discontinuation before regional anesthesia, surprisingly. Yeah, even uh, single uh, injections of low-dose heparin are, are probably pretty safe. Now, when it comes to thienopyridine drugs like clopidogrel, the waters get a little bit murkier. Case reports highlight spinal hematoma formation, prompting guidelines to recommend discontinuing of drugs like clopidogrel, uh, sometimes called Plavix, uh, ticlotapine, and other thienopyridine. Uh, it might even require longer sensation, up to around 10 to 14 days. So for clopidogrel, probably seven days. Uh, ticlotapine, probably 10 to 14 days is reasonable before you consider putting in a spinal or an epidural uh, block. Yeah, and you know, there's a couple of other considerations like removal of epidural catheters also pose another potential risk. And guidelines do suggest discontinuing clopidogrel uh, for at least five days before the procedure. Now, I know we weren't going to talk about warfarin, but let's let's give it a little bit of lip service here, where ASRA actually recommends stopping vitamin K antagonists for four to five days before regional anesthesia, emphasizing the importance of normalizing INR levels before embarking on a regional or an epidural. Yeah. And, you know, I think historically we talked about a, an INR about 1.2 being safe, but it's interesting to note that the ASRA rec suggests an INR of 1.4 uh, is probably more adequate for safe neuroaxial blocks and catheter removal, despite previous recommendations for higher levels. Now, moving on to heparin, subcutaneous dosing seems to be relatively safe, as we said earlier. However, for intraoperative heparin administration, precautions are advised, including a delay between the neuroaxial procedure and heparin administration, maybe even of an hour or so. Yeah, you know, that's certainly our consideration when we're putting in epidurals in some of our bigger cases, we, uh, we do wait a little bit just to make sure, um, coagulation occurs and then, um, and then offer the, uh, the heparin injection or a low molecular weight. And certainly the risk of low molecular weight heparins certainly are a little bit more pronounced. So guidelines do recommend delaying neuroaxial anesthesia after once daily low molecular weight heparin administration and restarting that agent no less than uh, 24 hours postoperatively. So for twice daily dosing, needle placement should be delayed after the last dose. And the catheter removal should precede restarting the low molecular weight heparin therapy. Yeah, that stuff's nothing to be sneezed at. The low molecular weight heparin has a long half-life and a long duration of action and really, really does uh, inhibit factor 10 pretty, pretty effectively. So let's turn our attention for just a second to thrombolytic therapy. You know, there is scarcity of clinical data prompts caution, and ASRA refrains from specific recommendations. Now, the New York School of Regional Anesthesia suggests waiting a minimum of 10 days post-TPA administration before performing any neuraxial anesthetics. And that's a pretty pretty strong recommendation. Yeah, you know, Terry, and as we wrap up our exploration of, of anticoagulants, then the whole range and gamut, and certainly the most 
uh, notable ones that we see in our practice today, as well as regional anesthesia, it's clear that these guidelines play pivotal roles in ensuring patient safety. And we do want to reinforce that the adherence to these recommendations is crucial for nurse anesthetists in managing the delicate balance between anticoagulation and the benefits of regional anesthesia. So for our listeners, it's important to keep abreast of this rapidly changing categories of not only anticoagulant agents, but reversals and perioperative recommendations. So, you know, we've reviewed a range of agents and recommendations, um, and unless you're confronting these issues every day in your practice, it might be a little difficult to remember everything. It is complicated. So, you know, we've drafted a reference list for this podcast uh, with some current articles and in addition to the ones that we've discussed here uh, in the podcast, but we'll put them up on the podcast webpage for review, and we recommend that you do download those articles and keep it for future reference in your back pocket because you never know when you'll need it. Since they do have a lot of decision trees, strengths of recommendations with a lot of nice charts, you know, that's one of the things that we would like to make sure that we impart with this podcast on anticoagulation as well as um, reversal of anticoagulants. Let me just throw one thing in here, Gary, and that is that there are some good apps for your phone uh, or your uh, portable device. And ASRA and pain medicine has uh, an app called Coags. Um, I don't know. I think it costs like a dollar or something like that. Mm. That the latest version I have is 2.9, and it has uh, guidelines for administration and discontinuation of epidural and spinal uh, techniques. So uh, again, ladies and gentlemen, take take advantage of all of those resources that are out there for you uh, because it's crucial for ensuring your patient's safety and preventing complications. So uh, Gary's going to wrap us up here. Well, Terry, why don't you wrap a ribbon around this episode and recap what we've learned in this edition of Anesthesia Alchemy? All right. Glad to do it, Gary. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about anticoagulants, uh, reversal of anticoagulants, some of the subtle nuances that depend on patient comorbidities and surgical procedures. And uh, we've talked about the clotting cascade um, and even the, the wonderful uh, natural inhibition of coagulation uh, by plasmin and uh, converted to plasminogen and so forth and so on. So we want to thank you for being with us on this journey and uh, hope that you will join us again and learn some new words that are hard to pronounce and what their clinical implications are. So Gary, take us out of here. Well, there you have it. Thank you, Terry. And, uh, you know, for tomorrow morning for your breakfast, don't forget your Batrixaban and milk. <laughs> Certainly uh, <laughs> sprinkle a little milk over that on your morning cereal would be great. Well, I think that's a wrap, Terry. Hey, y'all come back and see us again in a couple of weeks for another riveting, spellbinding, soul-cleansing episode of Anesthesia Alchemy. Terry and Gary Unplugged. Right here on your gas-passing podcast headquarters. Woohoo! Take care. Don't forget to give us a like. Attention all certified nurse anesthetists. Are you in need of a reliable and quality continuing education option? Well, look no further than crnaeducation.com. 
We are an NBCRNA-recognized provider, offering all four core CPC modules to meet your certification requirements. You can choose from more than 100 AANA prior-approved Class A CE credits, with 43 articles covering a wide range of anesthesia topics. Need pharmacology CE credits? Well, we've got you covered there as well, with over 40 pharmacology CE credits available. All credits are completed online and are mobile-friendly. Choose articles worth one, two, or three credits. There's no subscriptions, no hidden fees, just the CE credits you need when you need them. Owned by CRNAs since 2011, you can trust in our commitment to your education. And customer service is always a quick email or phone call or even text away. To sign up and find out more about our education options, visit crnaeducation.com, your partner in continuing education. That's crnaeducation.com. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.